Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm political scientist Michael Baranowski. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Morning, Jay. How are you doing this morning? Well, it's sort of the cold, cold gray dawn after a late night of justice uh, last night. So I'm, <laughs> pulling, I'm pulling myself together, Mike. I'm rallying for... Uh, for this because America needs me. So well, America definitely does need you. For me, it's weird because this is the first new year that I'm entering in a long time and not being in college in any way, shape or form. So it's kind of a couple of weeks ago, or I guess a week ago, I, re- I recorded the new intro to the podcast because while I am still a political scientist, I am not a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University, which is Kind oh, yeah. Weird. You know, I see the semester beginning and it's always that that because tomorrow. Can you, can you say like, you know, political scientist at Northern Kentucky University Emeritus? You know, but that makes me feel much older than I actually That does am, sound old. You know? That does sound old. Because I want to say because then I'd have to say, but I retired early and I still am full of life and energy and have potentially decades ahead of me, uh, you know, assuming no bus hits me or something like that. So, you know, we just get a little involved. So I just went with political scientist, Michael Baranowski, just keep it short and sweet. So unlike this intro, which I've dragged out way too long, but we have so many things we want to talk about this week. We want to get into, well, geez, I don't know, a a bunch of things, right? Joe Biden made a big speech near Valley Forge. The Supreme Court is going to be hearing that case on Donald Trump's eligibility. Uh, Of course, the Claudine Gay resignation even more charges against Senator Menendez. And there's just so much we want to get to. And so I just say, let's just get right to it. Okay. Let's get going. Okay. Let's get going. Well, let's open with the Supreme Court's announcement on Friday evening that it will be hearing an appeal of the Colorado Supreme Court ruling in which Donald Trump was declared ineligible for the Republican primary ballot because he'd engaged in insurrection. Now, oral arguments are being scheduled for February 8th, and it's generally expected that a ruling from the court will follow pretty quickly thereafter, given the urgency of the issue. Now, Jay, I feel fairly confident that the court will find that Donald Trump is eligible to be on the ballot, and I'm betting you agree with that. So what I'm wondering is if it'll be a unanimous or near unanimous decision or more along sort of party of presidential appointment line. So what are your thoughts on all that? Well, I, you know, it's, I'll say a, a, a couple things. One, I think that might depend a little on the theories and how they get there. Right. I do not think it will be unanimous um, because for a couple reasons, one is why, why would you, <laughs> you know, it's a sort of this is sort of the the I think I could see a lot of concurring in, in the judgment only. Right. Or, you know, that sort of thing. Where they'll say, yeah, look, I suppose the, the judgment got this right. But then here's four or five pages about how horrible Trump is and, and so forth. I think there could be uh, some who say, I, I don't know. I, again, it's a, a tough call. I think. This is a test for for 
Chief Justice Roberts and how many he can pull together and how um, uh, how I'm trying to think of the best word again, late night for justice. Well, I, I, um, I, I agree with you on that. How, think, how, uh, how close, you know, how how much common ground can he pull together? amongst everyone to make a, a statement. If, if I'm him, I'm, I'm making the pitch. Listen, the court needs to to make a, a important statement here uh, about people being able to choose who they want to vote for. Um, uh, and, you know, how, how do we how do we get that so that that is as as unanimous as possible, understanding it's it's not going to be unanimous, unanimous. It's not going to be Justice Roberts writing for the court. Uh, there are going to be a whole bunch of, of concurrences and uh, probably some dissents. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I have a little more faith in the three uh, liberals on the court probably than you do. Not surprisingly. Right. And and it seems it seems to me that the safest way for the court to deal with this issue is to not at all get into that kind of thicket of whether or not Donald Trump is or is not an insurrectionist and how do we determine that and what's sufficient evidence of all that and and just say that indirect insurrection clause does not apply to the president. And, and we talked about that a few weeks ago. That may seem like a strange argument on the surface, but if you look back at sort of the uh, discussions around the framing of that amendment, it's not at all a ridiculous argument to make. And that, to me, would be the safe way to go about it, just to avoid that issue. Now, another possibility, though, is, is saying, ruling that, well, uh, that Donald Trump, to be declared an insurrectionist, there has to be either some sort of a congressional ruling, some formal ruling, or he has to be found guilty of the crime yeah. of insurrection. I like, I like, I like the, I like the, congr- the like non self executing, yeah, argument myself, but. And so I, I think I expect it to be a, at least seven two, but I'm hoping it will be eight one or ideally unanimous on an issue like this. I think it's it's really important to try to get as much of that as possible, and I'm sure the Chief Justice will be will be pushing for that sort of thing. But I think you're right. Any sort of opinion that would get the that would get the court's three liberals on board would probably rankle. Uh, Alito and Thomas, especially, I would expect. And so it will be there might be a unanimous or near unanimous decision, but I cannot imagine there would be one opinion that all justices would sign on to. No, no, no. I I would say absolutely not. Yeah, because this is just something everybody's got to weigh in on. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, another kind of late breaking story, I guess. Uh, I don't even want to call it a story. There's this term that story Daniel Daniel Borston, he called a uh, pseudo events, right? Things that are, and this is a pseudo event, but then again, most of politics is is pseudo events. Uh, uh, President Biden gave an address on Friday near Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, and it sort of marks the unofficial kickoff of his reelection campaign. And in the speech, he called January 6, 2021, and we're recording this on January 6, 2024, uh, a day that we nearly lost America. And he went on to say that the 2024 campaign is about whether democracy is still uh, America's sacred cause. He went into a lot of detail recounting the attack on the Capitol, reminding listeners that uh, that Donald Trump did nothing as the attack went on and characterizing that in action as among the worst derelictions of duty by a president in American history. And then pointing out that Trump. And, and, and here's the weird thing. I, I would agree with him on that. Yeah. And that's what I was going to ask you about, because when I looked at the uh, the speech, I thought, well, there's not a lot here, at least in terms of relaying the sort of factual elements, you know, that, yeah, he's he's right about all of those things, certainly, you know, pointing out that, hey, Donald Trump did call the January 6th people patriots and he did suggest he was going to pardon a whole bunch of them. and so. If you did a fact check on that speech, I think it'd come out pretty clean, right? But I wanted to get your sense more generally about kind of what Biden was doing there and what you thought about it. So I, I would say, with the exception of what I, I <laughs> just mentioned, um, is sort of, uh, to me, strikingly disingenuous demagoguery. Um, 
and and fear mongering. Uh, and I think that's that's troubling. I don't think, and also I don't think it's particularly politically politically effective. Um, but it's disingenuous and sort of um, hypocritical. And I hate to use hypocritical because because I think hypocrisy is is never really a good argument. Rather, it's it's a it's it's a tell, but that's a that's a another another conversation. But this is this is the guy whose party is actively seeking to keep people off of various ballots. I mean, trying to keep any third party challengers, any uh, down ticket Democrat challengers, uh, you know, off off of Democrat primary ballots. They're you know prosecuting. Donald Trump for a variety of issues and having people make the arguments that uh, he's therefore ineligible to 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 be on the ballot, uh, and and you know then makes the this the statement well you know democracy is on the ballot, um, which which again seems to me is horrible speech writing, but um, uh, yeah it just yeah so I generally it's a big turnoff now again I think there's a great argument to say Donald Trump is un, unfit to be president. I, I think there's a great argument to be made that uh, he was grossly negligent in the dereliction of his duty on January 6th. Um, but but all that is is something different than um, what Biden engaged. I think you can you can make the argument of his his remarks are intemperate. They are are you know recall some of the worst of of history. He's either historically ignorant or or intentionally inflammatory. All that is, if I were Joe Biden, I, I would say that stuff. Um, but, the, you know, as the, the so-called, you know, the full Hitler sort of thing, again, I think that you start to wade into the territory of the ridiculous. I, um, I, I feel that's a fairly unsympathetic reading of Biden's remarks, to say the least. I think. Well, I mean, you, yeah, well, of course. you, you didn't expect a whole lot of sympathy from me, did you? I, I guess not. I have a little sympathy. But, well. I think not so much sympathy, but it's difficult to disagree on the facts. And we both agree that on the factual side of it, that, that Biden was fairly correct. But I feel that your your read of it, that this this idea that there is no threat from Donald Trump, given Donald Trump's own comments about what he would do while in office and given you know, I understand what you're saying is that you're kind of looking at, well, what did he actually do? And you certainly can critique him for that. But arguing that he will be even worse. Well, I don't understand why Joe Biden wouldn't do that. If, Like I said, if you just use Donald Trump's own words and promises or threats about his basically what seems like it will be oh, his boy, revenge I, tour. I do think that's I do think that's that's all fair game, right? To make those to make those arguments. Um what I don't think is is fair game is this sort of alarmism that you know we're we're devolving into fascism, right? Because keep in mind all these arguments the, the fascist arguments were made in 2016 that, you know, if Donald Trump wins, you know, it's, it's Nazi Germany. Um, and actually, you know, this is, this is pretty funny. We, we were, you and I were going to try to do a newsletter in support of the, the politics guys. And it just proved too much to do, but I still have on my computer. Um, my, one of my entries into that, and it was, it was all about fascism. They cried from 2016 saying, this is, you know, we're devolving into fascist government. And, and, uh, we didn't. You can say Trump did a lot of dumb things. You can say I just dis dislike this policy, that policy. Um, you can say he certainly was a populist and appealed to maybe some of the baser instincts, um, and and so forth. But but again, that to, to me, it's always it's important analytically, right? That we we put the right names on things. Um, you know, it's it's sort of. You could you could be pretty sick and and well maybe it's a um, bacterial infection maybe it's a viral infection. The distinction is important in how you treat it, uh, and that's that's sort of my my argument is, um, and, and and it's it's obviously in, in politicians' interests to be indistinct, right? Uh, and you just say Donald Trump is a sickness, right? <laughs> or but but. Um, yeah, I'm, that's that's 
come down. And I think the the idea that again the the dark Brandon personality, I just I don't think it's it's a good selling point. I guess I feel that there is more of a real possibility of the sort of things that some people fear because you're right that we did not descend into some sort of a you know a US version of Hitler's Germany or as 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 only a few people a few extremists on the far left were thinking let me let me finish yeah. let me finish but i also think a reasonable case can be made that in Donald Trump's first term he reached out to fill his administration with the only people he really knew at the time. And these were people who were, as, as we've called them, and many people call them the adults in the room, and that there is every reason to believe that Donald Trump will not make what he saw as that mistake again, and that he will be able to hit the ground running with a cadre of true believers or syncophants or whatever you want to call them behind him. And given that, even if he's not able to crash democracy in some way, he might be able to do considerable harm to our democratic institutions. Now, I don't. Oh, I, I think you're. I think you're right. Okay. No, I, I agree with you on all that. Yeah. And and also, I guess I would say that this idea that well, saying that democracy on the ballot is hypocritical because what Democrats are doing, I would argue that's something of a false equivalence because it's one thing to make what I feel are reasonable constitutional arguments like the insurrection clause. It's another thing to create fantastical theories out of whole cloth about widespread voter fraud that are in many instances, in most instances, were, were almost laughed out of court and to threaten people who reach certain conclusions about the Constitution that are were reached reasonably and in good faith, like the threats against the the main secretary of state. This is the sort of, I think, undemocratic, thuggish behavior that makes people legitimately concerned. Sure. No. And, and I I'm not I'm not discounting that or. or or disagreeing with that. I do think it's it's hypocritical, not not just the trying to keep Trump off the ballot. And again, just keep in mind there was there was also at the same time a a democratic um push to to almost seek, you know, to in back the last midterm elections to support and see that the more extreme Republicans uh won primaries, right? So again, this this idea that that's that's my point is if they're really all that scared, and I don't think they are, and that's what I mean by hypocrisy is sort of a tell, right? Um it's it's this is a a to some extent inflation. And that's that's not to say I don't think the, a second Donald Trump term would be in his words, very, very bad. Um but uh uh yeah, I, I guess I guess that's my my take on it. I mean, the other thing is, if for for a lot of, put yourself in the place of a lot of conservatives, when they hear Joe Biden say, "Listen, this is this is something terrible," because if President Trump, if Trump becomes president again, he will be a dictator, and they they might rightfully ask themselves, "Well, like, what would he do as dictator? Would he try to unilaterally cancel billions of dollars in public debt?" Well, okay, we already got that. You know, would he would he work with social media companies to to censor posts of, of of third parties? Well, well, maybe. Would he send the IRS to visit the house of a whistleblower the day they're testifying in in Congress? Well, I don't know. Would he call for his his attorney general to prosecute his main political opponent? I don't know. If you're if you're sitting on the other side, a whole lot of that looks pretty dictatorial. Um, but there's one big so difference is that a dictator does not have those those constitutional checks in place. And so there's a big, big difference between a president trying to push beyond his legitimate powers and being checked. Well, it's in it's those dictatorship efforts. versus attempted dictatorship. Exactly. And that's a, yeah. that's a huge difference. And yeah. the concern is when when there are when there's talk about things like using the military to get involved in elections and seize voting machines and, and really scary stuff 
like that. I mean, that's the sort of thing that you cannot imagine. It's difficult for me to imagine anyone but a Donald Trump attempting to do. Um, well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if imagine I could imagine other people attempting to do it. Um, but another another point that I would bring up, and again, if if you're viewing this from from the perspective of the MAGA voter, right, or even even the non MAGA, just regular conservative voter, there is there if you're looking at sort of the balance of power type thing, and you're exactly right on the institutions and and where they are. And during the Trump presidency, the institutions invariably, sometimes beyond what their scope ought to have been, um, uh, opposed him. Right. The, the checks and balances worked uh, and there were even more, you know, institutional checks against Trump. And certainly in academia, in the media, in in religion, um, uh, in in professional trade groups. Right. That's. Joe, Joe Biden would not be as impeded uh, because he would have that institutional support. The only place he probably wouldn't have it would be in the courts. Um, he also wouldn't so have it I, in the Congress. True, true. Well, yes and no. He'd have probably partially have it in Congress, right? He wouldn't, you know, but. And, and let's keep so that's, in mind. That, that what, I'm saying, what I'm saying is that's that's my point is. When when voters, certainly Trump voters and independent voters hear this concern about, you know, we're heading into, the, you know, there would be a dictatorship. Uh, they, I think some of them fairly ask, well, compared to what? Yeah, I think that if, that might know, be true for conservative voters who wouldn't be voting for Biden in the first place. I mean, Joe Biden's not trying to get your vote because it's it'd, it'd be pointless. But I, I think to independent to actually independent voters, that small portion, maybe 10 percent of the electorate that's legitimately independent that I think that is a, a reasonable argument to make and sure it's in in places it's absolutely a bit of hyperbole because that's that's what campaigning's about right you can't say well if Donald Trump wins he will he will change the federal you know scheduling and they'll be able to fire 10,000 more people and let's get into all these policy details and you know people just fall asleep right it's that. it's sort of yes it was sort of like the 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 Bob Bob Dole campaign, if you know, if elected, all in all, improve growth by one point five percent. Exactly. You need to say it'll be the most dynamic economy ever, right? I mean, yeah, that's just, yeah. and that's I think that's that's legitimate, fair kind of hyperbole as opposed to some of the stuff that you can say is well a little more out of bounds. So, all right. Well, more. And I, I would say I would say again, to some extent, the. Um, uh, reductio ad Hitlerum would would that's and and for 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 a lot of reasons and and that is you know sort of because one it's all too easy and and second just historically speaking Hitler the Nazis I mean are you know were unique and people say oh no there's all those terrible terrible things. yeah yes and no um but but no it was something completely different in kind and i would i would argue and i think a lot of historians would argue too peculiar to the time and place where it happened that's not to say that you would have uh, uh other stuff that is equally bad or equal authoritarianism right but not every authoritarian is hitler um uh is, is sort of my point yeah so and it's yeah, I, it's I, it's important for yeah for the Again, this is and this is not as someone I'm out there, you know, campaigning. I'm looking at this as analytically, right? It's, you know, our job. I look at my job, right? To try to put the most accurate label on stuff um as I can. So so when I when I say I think, you know, Trump presidency would be very, very bad, it's it's for a lot of those reasons, some of them ideological, some of them almost lack of ideological, right? Um, and, and a lot just for competence and for, as you pointed out of, of, you know, you aren't going to have the adults in the room, um, uh, and, 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 you know, just, just chaos. But again, uh, chaos isn't fascism. In fact, it's sort of the opposite. Sure. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders 
no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This week, as everyone knows, Harvard President Claudine Gay resigned. And this was shortly after even more verified instances of plagiarism in her academic work emerged. And in a letter that she wrote to Harvard uh, announcing this, she said, it has become clear that it is in the best interest of Harvard for me to resign so that our community can navigate this moment of extraordinary challenge with a focus on the institution rather than any individual. And later on in the letter, she wrote, it has been distressing to have doubt cast on my commitments to confronting hate and to upholding scholarly rigor, two bedrock values that are fundamental to who I am and frightening to be subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus. There it is. Yeah. Now, Jay, now, Jay, on our last midweek show, I asked you yes. if, if Gay would end up resigning under pressure or if you thought. And Harvard, I said no. Yeah, yeah. you said you said uh, you said they'd be race, racial, racist misogynist if they uh, forced her out. Right. And uh, this whole idea that, well, the emperor has no clothes, but you can't say that. And if you do try to force her out or say anything against Claudine Gay, you're racist, racist and misogynistic. And so what do you think happened here? Because that obviously didn't end up being the case. Oh, I read back because, you know, and for those of you who aren't, don't, you know, aren't on the little, the stream thing, Mike sort of posts and you yeah rewrote verbatim uh, what I said. And I reread that. And I was like, damn, that was good. Um, I would, I would say I was, hundred percent right on that, except for the um, fact that she actually did resign. Her in she had an essay in the New York Times, um, which is what all people who gracefully resign do. <laughs> you know, and in which she said, "Those who you know that her critics were those who had relentlessly campaigned to oust me since the fall, often trafficked in lies and ad hominem insults, not reasoned argument." They recycled tired racial stereotypes about black talent and temperament. And and I, I think in most readers would, would read that as saying, if you supported me being out, you are racist and misogynist. And I think that's just what, what she said. Well, no, that's not just uh, what she it, said. She said that some some people who were pushing for that were pushing, were, were making those arguments. And that's true. But just because that there are racist and misogynist people who were who were pushing for that doesn't mean that everyone who was pushing for that is racist and misogynist. I think it's an important distinction to make. Well, I mean, again, her words, those who had relentlessly campaigned to oust me. Um, but there weren't that many people who were relentlessly campaigning. They were almost that relentless. She's only she's only upset about the relentless. Well, that, that's what I'm just saying. That's what she if you're going to say that's what she said. Well, let's look at what she said. I mean, if we're going to parse the words. Let's parse the words. Yeah. All right. So she also went on to say, you know, the campaign, uh, it, it's more about than about me. It's about I right, only find this. It's it's merely a single skirmish and a broader war to unravel public faith and pillars of American society. Um, and the, the trusted institutions of all types, from public health agencies to news organizations, will continue to fall victim to coordinated attempts to undermine their legitimacy and ruin their leaders' credibility. Well, that's true. Um, well, no, but is is I guess I'm let's there's there's a difference between saying um Oh, I'm I'm going to gracefully resign for the good of the organization because I don't want this to be about me. And then then going and taking a vacation versus saying I'm going to gracefully resign because this shouldn't be about me and we need a time for healing. And then two days later, 
writing, listen, this has all been been pushed by people who are relentlessly after me and then dishonest and not raising, all. I, um, I think I think the problem is on both sides. On both sides, people are having a trouble believing or accepting that multiple things can be true. And it seems to me that both sides are having trouble accepting the fact that their ideological opponents can be right about certain things. No, true things can be said by people you believe to be bad people acting in bad faith. Just like I right. think that the people who uh, uh, Chris Rufo and the other folks who kind of made the whole plagiarism thing a big issue, I think that it's it's reasonable to conclude that they are bad faith actors. But hey, the claims but right. that they made, yeah, yeah, exactly. And just like I think you can say that, well, Claudine Gay's Times editorial is maybe written in a similar sort of bad faith, but it doesn't mean that she's wrong about systematic attempts by many on the right to discredit in certain institutions like higher education. And so I'm saying that if if we should be willing to consider that just like Chris Rufo had some right things to say, it's also reasonable to conclude that, hey, Claudine Gay has some correct things to say about this as well. There were people who made vicious racial attacks on her using the N-word and but other who? things like that that were just. But, I mean, but serious, I mean, are, are you saying serious people who are in this discussion or or just some some nut on Twitter? Well, it's not necessarily, as we know, in, in modern American politics, not just some nuts when public officials and public figures of all sorts get threats on their life, uh, you know, both on the left and on the right. This is a real thing. So it's not just, well, some nut online that we can just sort of laugh off. It's people who go to Supreme Court justices' houses with hammers and zip ties. And right. People who, but those, people but those who, aren't the people who, who forced her resignation. Well, no, those aren't the people who forced her. The people who forced her resignation were people like Bill Ackman, who who is a huge Harvard donor, who said, look, and, you know, unless you do this, I'm going to reconsider my my support of the institution. Well, sure. Um, that has to be a big a big factor. Absolutely. I guess. So what, what I'm saying, what I'm saying is, is I'm I, but Ian Gay was not driven out by um, uh, nuts on the Internet. She was she was pushed out by. Um, Again, people, the well-moneyed folks, uh, she was to some extent pushed out by Elise Stefanik, right, who who pushed her on her comments in the first place. Elise Stefanik, a Harvard alumna. Um, but but I guess this is this is what troubles me is that that again, her first step is the they recycled tired racial stereotypes about black talent and temperament. Um, well. No, what was the what was the tired racial stereotype about um, plagiarism? Uh, right. I mean, it's it is it is what it is, and has nothing to do with the color of your skin. Now, there, uh, there, I'll there, I'll agree with you, but I think it would have been expecting far too much for any figure as prominent as Claudine Gay to write in a resignation letter, you know what, I was a I was a sloppy scholar. I played I was a serial plagiarizer. This is not in keeping with the standards of Harvard. I am resigning in disgrace. Uh please forgive no, me. No, 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 no. What I'm what I'm my my point is that you <laughs> you don't you don't have to admit that you did all there's 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 a, a line between saying, yes, I admit I, I did all these terrible things and I don't think they're terrible. Again, I would say it's it's sloppy. Um, uh, perhaps, perhaps dishonest, and saying those who who raise those issues are trafficking in racial stereotypes. Right, but what I'm saying is that both of those things can be true at the same time. That uh, the racial the racial stereotype trafficking can sort of come along with the actual good and substantive arguments. And okay. and and I think that that yes. I guess I'm I'm looking my my what I'm saying is my prediction was that the response again I thought thought she wouldn't resign because people would if if they if she did those who forced the resignation or accepted the resignation would be accused of of racism and misogyny. So um, do you give the Harvard and, Corporation and my, point any is, credit my here? point is two days later they essentially were. 
Well, do, do you give, I mean, the fact that this didn't happen, that the Harvard, that, that Harvard didn't stand behind her in the end and in, in the weight of this evidence, does it at least, is it positive in any way to you or is that not, not at all? Oh, no, I think it's positive. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Now I'm, I'm enough of a, a realist though. I think I would look at this and I, I don't necessarily see it as a, um, you know, as folks like to say, a teachable moment where where the the folks, the people who made this decision to accept her resignation um, said, wow, we really need to change our image. This is a bad look having someone who is apparently, um, let's say, maybe unsympathetic to Jewish students, uh, that there seems to be a certain degree of, of uh, selectivity in, in our uh, uh, student codes are enforced, and and that's a that's a selectivity is is politically driven, and that she seems not to meet the the academic rigor requirements that we would expect in a president of of this esteemed institution. Um, I think they looked at they looked at this and said, "Crap! Unless she goes, we're going to lose a bunch of money." Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, I mean, I I don't. I, so, so I, I, that's what I'm saying. I don't, I don't see this as any big, great reconsideration of, wow, have we gone the wrong way in in putting racial and uh, gender diversity and and all these other goals above what had traditionally been our criteria, our cure criteria, or or making those types of of attributes the number one criteria. Um, oh, I don't think they're the number uh, one criteria I, I think, I think at all. Saying, Man, we're going to lose. We're going to lose. We're going to lose a bunch of money. Exactly, and that's um, that's the number one criteria. I mean, Harvard is a fifty billion dollar endowment that also happens to be an institution of higher learning at this point, right? right. And so, and I, and I would say, I would say the same thing for Penn, right? Sure, absolutely. I mean, that was even more a clear instance of that. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, but again, this that's sort of a, a weird uh, situation there of of uh, setting aside the plagiarism piece, right? Um, Claudine Gay, and I'm forgetting mercifully the name of the uh, the the Penn president who already resigned. Right? I mean, again, why is why why would one be uh, one's opponents uh, have uh, you know be be trafficking racial stereotypes, uh, the other not? Well, um, because if you have the conduct uh, well, is essentially the same. Well, well, I think that's because you know Penn's president wasn't wasn't black. And you can't really traffic in racial stereotypes against a white person so much. Right. But I guess my, my I mean, point is um, it, it's one of those. If, if, if Claudine Gay resigns or doesn't resign um, or my, my sense is if I say I think Claudine Gay failed miserably in her Capitol Hill testimony or I think Claudine Gay handled this poorly. My sense is I would be accused of trafficking in racial stereotypes. Well, that's not a racial stereotype. If you said Claudine Gay failed miserably because she is black, that would be trafficking in a racial stereotype. Yeah, so, but of course, of course, remember the way this works in the real world, though, right? Is is no one actually says that they, they someone says something like, I think she failed miserably. And then the response is, well, you're saying that because she's black. You wouldn't say that about a white person, would you? And I would say, no, I would say that about McGill of, of Penn as well. And they're like, well, yeah, but uh, she's black. So therefore, what you're doing by saying, you know, she can't do this job by saying uh, she is promoted above her competence level, um, which I don't necessarily which I don't necessarily believe. Right. I think she was very competent to do what she was hired to do. It's just what she was hired to do was not <laughs> what they said, the real, you know, um, again, the, the hypocrisy piece of it. I think they were exactly she was exactly what what Harvard wanted. Um, but I'm not sure if I'm making my my myself clear, but but I think it's I think it's it's unfortunate when when someone, again, resigns for, let's say, ostensibly not ostensibly, uh, but but. Uh, plagiarism, academic dishonesty, uh, and sort of the really bad Capitol Hill um, uh, performance. And then then says, well, it's, you know, it's because I'm black. 
I, that that is is so so troubling, and it's exactly what I predicted would happen, and it did. And you'll see. You also let me put it this way: you also saw um, uh, last week Al Sharpton and company protesting outside of Bill Ackman's offices, right? And uh, this whole th- again, it's this. This is no. I'm not. I'm not suggesting Claudine Gay put him up to it. Probably the contrary. Al Sharpton's, you know, perfectly capable of making a fool of himself with without any need for outside suggestions. But again, to me, that's that's what's 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 troubling is that when you have some objective evidence and it immediately devolves into it's a racial thing. And and anyone who who says, listen, we want the president of Harvard to have this, you know, legitimate stellar academic record. We want the president of Harvard to speak cogently and consistently on on how we're going to handle hate on campus. Yeah, it's it's it, it's troubling that the 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 first response <laughs> the response is okay, I'll resign, and then and you guys are racist. I think that's that's so counterproductive, and it's it's so um, uh, again, if anything undermines faith in institutions. Uh, I think it's it's that kind of behavior. I understand what you're saying, but I also think it's important to point out that, you know, we are two white men who don't have that lived experience of everyday racial animus. And many people, especially folks our age and older who are black, who aren't white males, grew up with. And so when when you're hammered with that, throughout your entire life, especially during your formative years, I think it's difficult to just say, well, let's just let's just assume that they don't mean that, even though for my whole life I have been treated differently, looked askance at it. And so I think I Mike, she's president of Harvard. She's she's made more money than you or I ever will in our lifetimes combined. She has gotten more power, more esteem than you and I ever will on our lifetimes combined. She can write a book next week, go on a speaking tour and make millions of dollars, have tons of adoring fans of all races showing up to hear her speak. Um, and, 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 and I mean, so if you want to, I mean, that's what I'm saying is I don't know this. It's lived experience. Well, the lived um, experience she's, is she's done quite well for herself, you know. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of a, a strange thing to, to make the argument that, uh, listen, everything is racist. Everyone's racist. I'm not uh, making that argument. I'm just saying that. Top of the heat. I'm not making. No, I know you're not. You're okay. not. But I, I'm just saying that it does. If you could I'll be making, you could be making ten thousand dollars or ten million dollars, and uh, the cops that pull you over for driving while black don't necessarily know that, or the person who uses who who sends you a message with the N word in it, you know, that that still is going to have that visceral effect that you and I have never experienced and, and can't appreciate. You're right that she's a Claudine Gay is is a incredibly privileged person, more so than than we are economically and in terms of social status. But that lived reality of still being a black person in America and, and those things that happen to essentially all black people in America, even now, that's something we shouldn't just brush under the rug. Right. But again, my, my, my point is it's, she wasn't, was, was she charged with plagiarizing while black? Sure. I, yeah, the... And I understand that point. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what, that's what muddies the waters more than a little bit, right? Is that again, is that the plagiarism is just a fact and it, it it's a flat, it is a fact that does not matter about your race, right? Whether you're a black plagiarizer or a white plagiarizer. So absolutely on that, you and I agree. There is one other thing, something maybe to clear up. Wilmer raised this point. He asked uh, about last last week when we talked about this. He said that he said that you made it sound, at least to him, like the specific action of cheating on those papers was the direct reason why Gay became president. Um, and he points out to get tenure in advance in academia, you have to demonstrate accomplishment in several areas. But publications are, of course, the most objective item in order to advance. You need a large number of important publications, so cheating in a few would not normally get you there. DEI definitely was the most important factor in her case, and I just I wanted to raise that. Oh, so- I would say Wilmer's one hundred percent right. If if I if anything I said gave an impression to the contrary, um, yeah, 
I apologize. No, I that's that was sort of the point I was trying to make was that DEI was the most important factor because uh, otherwise factors like publications, amount of publications would have would have made a difference. Um, uh, what what happens in this case, I think, is she had to have a you know enough of a bare minimum credibility sort of to have you know have published some things right to give cover to the the real reason which was the DEI stuff you know before we move on it occurs to me that that the co- the amount of coverage on this issue is just it shouldn't have surprised me as much as it did but wow and i realize that the reason why in large part is that so many of the elite on both sides of the aisle are Harvard alumni of some, you know, of some type. And so when there's an issue at Harvard, the, 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 the media elite and the political elite, that's their school, you know, on both yeah. sides of things. And I think Harvard, it really gives you an illustration of how incredibly influential that one institution is both on the left and the right. And so when you bring Harvard into the center of this kind of culture war issue, it blows up in a way that it certainly wouldn't have at any other institution that I can think of in this country. No, I think you're right. And certainly the repercussions of this, this has been a bigger story than the Penn story. Now, again, you you throw in the issue that the Penn story sort of happened quickly, bang, she resigned, it was over. Whereas whereas with Colleen Gay, there was Claudine Gay, there was the a couple of weeks of, you know, will she, won't she? And then there's the racial element. So there's other things, but I think you're right. Okay. Well, why don't we move on to something uh, very different? And that's uh, Bob Menendez, who just can't seem to get under all of those all of those charges. Right. The the latest there was this latest federal indictment charging that he's you he used his position to help the government of Qatar or Qatar. I don't know. I've heard it pronounced both ways in exchange for. Bribes, including cash, uh, the Menendez favorite of gold bars, Formula One tickets, watches, all kinds of stuff. And again, there was a similar indictment with basically the same allegations concerning aid to Egypt. Now, Adam Fee, who's an attorney for Menendez, responded to the latest indictment by saying, despite what they've touted in press releases, the government does not have the proof to back up any of the old or new allegations against Senator Menendez. What they have instead is a string of baseless assumptions and bizarre conjectures based on routine lawful contacts between a senator and his constituents or foreign officials. They are turning this into a persecution, not a prosecution. Now, Menendez stepped down from his position chairing the Senate Foreign Relations Committee last fall after that first federal indictment. And he's, of course, insisted all along on his innocence He's resisted calls to resign and hasn't even ruled out running for re-election, though. Uh, his Democratic primary challenger right now is just completely trouncing him in the poll. So this is going to be a self-limiting issue in that sense, I think. And I uh, also wanted to point out, in the wake of this latest indictment, Pennsylvania Democratic Senator John Fetterman has once again been calling for Menendez to be expelled from the Senate. He wrote on X this last week, now accused of selling his honor and our nation for a $24,000 watch, accused as a foreign agent for two nations. How much more before we finally expel Senator Menendez? Yeah, well, good good for him. I'm usually, as you know, I'm typically not a John Fetterman fan. Um, and I don't know whether there might be other other things at, at going on there, right? Whenever you have sort of uh, inter-party fights, Sometimes there's there's other motives, but I think it's still the right thing to do regardless. So I I say good for him. And weirdly here, I will disagree with you entirely oh, on this. Okay. And people might not expect that. You're, you're, but... a, you're a Menendez 2024 guy. <laughs> a bumper sticker. No, no, not at all. But but I, I'll say this. Uh, I didn't have a chance to hold forth directly on the Santos expulsion when this, that was an episode that Trey and Ken did. But Trey did mention my position on this is I if I were in if I were in the House at that point, I would have voted against expelling Santos, just like I would not be in favor of expelling Fed, uh, it's Fetterman. I wouldn't be. No, I wouldn't vote for that either. But <laughs> Menendez. Come on, yeah. And that's because I believe in this concept of innocent until proven guilty. I think that presumption is important. 
And I think it's especially important when we're talking about depriving the people who have elected somebody of their representation. And I so, think, okay, that's that's okay. that's fair. I think, um, and I think I was on the same same page with you on or was on on Santos. But no, I, I do tend to think you know in this case it's one there's criminal charges which are one thing, and there's the other thing which is a political remedy. Um, and I, I, as I said earlier, and this goes to you know like the Trump ballot disqualifications. I think it's not good to mix the two. As as I understood, and maybe I misunderstood Fetterman's comments, I thought he was calling for Menendez to resign. No, he said, he said, uh, uh, how much more before, before we finally expel Senator Menendez? Ah, see, I wasn't listening. Sorry. That's okay. That's okay. I'm used to it. But but I think yeah. that's, that's an, you know, if you take a look over history, the Senate's only expelled 15 members. 14 of those were Confederates uh, in, in 1861. Insurrectionists, if yeah, you will. Yeah, so, okay, that's that's reasonable, right? And there was one other guy, like, in 1797 or something for treason. And now there have been more considered expulsions than actual expulsions. The, the most recent one was 1995, Bob Packwood. Uh, he resigned under a— Yeah, I remember yeah, You that. remember Bob Packwood, yeah. The old diaries, yeah. You know, so there was all this— al, al, Credible allegations of sexual misconduct, abuse of power. And it seems to me that when we're talking. <laughs> because he wrote it all down yeah, in his diary. It was pretty clear. Yeah. But but I think <laughs> that when we're talking about criminal charges, I think it's important to wait for some sort of authoritative body to hold forth. Now, I would argue that there was even more reason to expel Santos than than to expel than, than to expel Menendez, because in Santos' cases, the Ethics Committee had something to say. The Senate Ethics Committee hasn't even opened an investigation on Menendez yet, which which seems bizarre to me. And not only that, but the Senate Ethics Committee seems to be this incredibly untransparent thing. And people who've looked into it have found that I think since in the last 15 or so years, there have been over 1,500 complaints sent to the Ethics Committee with exactly zero of those complaints resulting in any formal disciplinary sanctions. So apparently you have to do a whole lot for the Senate Ethics Committee to even move against you in any real way. You know, I find that on one sense kind of troubling, but in the other sense you can make the argument, well, it is sort of a self-limiting thing, assuming this actually comes out. But I have more of a concern of it in the Senate than in the House, because in this, you know, if it in Menendez's case, like I said, he's not going to win even the Democratic primary. And so it's self-limiting in that sense. But if you have somebody just come- thought Menendez wouldn't win a couple of years ago, last time he was indicted and he did. Now, again, I, I agree the numbers are much different now. Yeah, he's and, down yeah, by like but, 40 points in, in the primary. Yeah. So, I mean, this is not even going to be uh, a thing. But 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 I, I guess I feel like the bar when you're dealing with things that are potentially criminally prosecutable then it makes sense to me to wait for some kind of a finding. But when you're just saying, well, you know, there were charges and so they must be true. Let's expel this guy. I, that, that's it. That doesn't sit right with me. No, I, I, and I would agree with, I would agree with you on that. I, I do get the idea though, too, if, if you really want to push someone to resign, you know, the, the way to do it is to say, I'm going to seek a vote to expel you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and 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 therefore, you know, you can you can do the do the Nixon math, right? Um, you know, you're, at some point, if you realize I'm not going to have the votes, then uh, you would resign. So I get that, and I, I'll I'll backtrack a little because again, uh, I misunderstood Fetterman in terms of expulsion versus resignation. But I do see the the calls for that and and calls to start an investigation to expel to expel that kind of thing as as pressure to resign. I would meet you sort of halfway on the criminal piece. Again, I, I, it, to me, it's important that the, the criminal justice sphere, uh, and the political sphere remain separate. Um, that said, there's a, there's one burden of proof in the criminal justice system, which is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And there is another burden of proof in the political system, which is 50% plus one, (laughs) whatever we, yeah. Whatever the votes are, they are. But I think um, it's premature to wait before there's even been any sort of real investigation, right? Yeah. You don't just say, mm-hmm. well, you've been charged with this, and we're not going to give you a chance to defend right. yourself. We're just going to assume you're right. guilty. 
But I certainly think, and you would agree with me that on this, that it's fair for voters to say, look, the you know, this hasn't gone to trial yet, but man, there looks like there's a whole lot of stuff here. This guy certainly looks shady. It's not, you know, again, no one's saying, gosh, that doesn't sound like Bob. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's exactly the sort of stuff he's been accused of for years. Um, you know, so I, I think it's perfectly fair for for voters to say, I'm going to, to vote against this guy, you know, before there's a criminal conviction. Yeah. And I think also there's another cat, another category of bad actions that aren't necessarily crimes but that fall into more generally abuse of power, that sort of thing, that that you could argue that, well, we can't charge him with anything, but this is just not okay to it's a level. shady as hell. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I would be okay with that. But this doesn't fall into that kind of kind of thing, I, I would say. I mean, I, it certainly seems to me that Bob Menendez is, is guilty as hell, but I think you know, uh, it's important that, especially for the people who we think are guilty as hell, that they get their day in court and their presumption of innocence. Oh, no, no, and, I, and, I, and I, I would completely agree with you when it comes to the court system that there's a presumption of innocence. My point is in the political system, there's not a presumption of innocence. Right, yeah, that's, that's okay, yeah, absolutely. But, but don't you think, don't, don't you find it at least a little bit refreshing uh, to see someone from someone's own party calling out someone on ethical and or criminal violations and not circling the wagons. Absolutely. Absolutely. So give I give John John Fetterman uh, a lot of credit for that. No question. All right. Well, let's talk about one more. I think we have time for one more thing. We'll go a little long, but that's okay. I, a story I've been kind of following with a certain amount of interest. As you, you might expect, Jay, the Republican leadership in Texas is not happy with U.S. Border Patrol, right? For, for, yeah. for, for so many reasons. But there's one in particular that made the news recently, and that's uh, the Border Patrol removing sections of razor wire put up by Texas at the border uh, so that agents could have access, at least sensibly, so they could have access to the border and reach migrants who've entered U.S. territory. Now, this goes back to this summer. There was a Texas state trooper sent an email to his superiors. This email became public, and it alleged that a pregnant 19-year-old having a miscarriage was stuck in the wire that Texas placed in the Rio Grande River, and also that there was a guy who suffered serious leg lacerations when he tried to cut his kid free from a barrel that would have been covered in razor wire and placed in the river, which the trooper called, in his words, a trap for people trying to cross. and. Now, Texas claims that the Border Patrol's actions in cutting this razor wire violate Texas's state trespass law, and there are some other legal violations as well. The federal government says that federal law gives the Border Patrol the right to, without a warrant, access private land within 25 miles of the international border to inspect, interrogate, apprehend uh, migrants, and that the razor wire prevents this access. Now, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals granted Texas an injunction preventing the Border Patrol to remove razor wire while this litigation proceeds, except in cases where medical emergency would make it necessary. And the Biden administration this week appealed to the Supreme Court to vacate the Fifth Circuit's injunction. Their argument is that under the Supremacy Clause, state law can't be allowed to restrain the Border Patrol from carrying out their actions authorized under federal law, and that basically the Fifth Circuit's injunction, in their words, inverts the Supremacy Clause by requiring federal law to yield to Texas law. So, Jay, there are a lot of issues involved here. Uh, uh, what do you think about all this? This is this is one uh, where, where it's sort of the opposite of the Scalia stamp of dumb but constitutional. I would say uh, uh, good policy, but unconstitutional. Okay, um, explain. Yeah, I, I have a pardon. I said explain. I'm interested in that. Yeah, explain. I think uh, Texas certainly has a a good argument um, um, that it ought to be able to put razor wire, whatever um, barriers it wants to prevent unwanted illegal um, immigration crossings into its state when the federal government is failing to do so. Uh, you can make the argument, and they did, and then the Fifth Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit largely accepted it. And that the state has a right to to protect its citizens' properties' interest in, in doing these things. So 
I'm I'm sympathetic to, to that point, right? That said, I think the constitutional argument, I think the government has the better of it, uh, in that that immigration is, I think, a a you know dedicated pure federal thing. And the supremacy clause would say that a, a state regulation that would interfere with the federal government's immigration policy would be unconstitutional. Um so so yeah, I I I find myself kind of, you know, again, reluctantly agreeing with the the uh, the government's position here on on supremacy and i understand that a lot of these cases um the the between state and federal governments there's a need to defend turf right um and you have to have these these fights even if the the thing you're fighting over is is not uh, is is not great now if i'm the biden administration i also look at this and say this is not politically a good look for them. But that's, again, that's a separate question. So, yeah, it's interesting. I, I had more, more trouble with this one maybe than you did, at least on the, on the legal aspects of it. And and here's why, because I I read through, I actually went through in some detail, the uh, fifth circuits uh, ruling on this, or actually, sorry, the district court's ruling. And and keep in mind that those courts were, were, weren't necessarily issuing a final ruling yeah, on the merits. Yeah. They're simply, yeah, an injunction, which is, which again, that's something we should point out that's a little different just based on who bears what burdens when. Yeah, although the Fifth Circuit granting that injunction suggests that, in their words, that Texas will likely There's succeed on the merits. little likelihood of success on the merits, yeah. Right, that they will succeed on or the merits. I'm sorry, the, well, that the government wouldn't likely succeed on the merits of being able to yeah, tear it down. Exactly. And, you know, it, yeah. it. so here's here's what gave me some pause. I read through uh, some of the findings of fact at the district court level, uh, and that's not obviously what the appellate courts do. But one of the findings of fact was that. The well, yeah, board, they do. Well, well, I guess not to the same, not to the same, because they're not they're not trying <laughs> the case in that sense. Right. No, but but they well, I guess I mean, I may be a misunderstood. I mean, I'm, I'm saying what I'm saying is the Fifth Circuit saying, you know. Differently read the right, no, no, I'm saying, but I'm saying that the appellate courts do not get into that stuff like Baranowski does. No, no, I'm saying that I'm saying that the circuit courts do not do their independent fact. They don't do their own facts. Exactly, exactly. So what I'm saying bound to the facts that the district court finds. Exactly, and so when I looked at the findings of fact at the district court level, one of them that kind of stopped me because initially my thinking was exactly the same as yours, but they found that actually that the border patrol had not been prevented from accessing the border. They were able to access the border on both sides and to do all the things they needed to do. And so I thought, wait a second here. So if the argument is that the Border Patrol can't access the border and that under federal law, they need to be able to access the border, but they're able to access the border, then I don't see how the federal law applies. See what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I, but, I I think that's. But then I thought, well, wait good, a second. That's good thinking. But 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 then I thought, well, let me look at the federal law a little more closely, and it says not just they they get to have access at the border, but it says within twenty five miles of the border, and so that's an important distinction because if they had meant just right at the border, they would have said that in the federal law, but they said within twenty five miles, and clearly having. A barrier like that razor wire there will prevent access within 25 miles of the border. And so then I came back more to your position where I think that actually the federal government does have a better argument here under the supremacy clause and sort of a plain reading of the statute that allows the Border Patrol this access. And and I guess I would also say that I feel that what Texas is doing is not only uh, – unconstitutional under the supremacy clause with that federal law superseding uh, that that state law. But I would argue that if the, the, the claims made by this Texas state trooper and others are correct, if they're doing things like placing semi-hidden barrels covered with concertina wire in the river, uh, that's not only potentially reckless, I call it morally more than questionable. Yeah, you know, I mean, no, no, I would agree with I would agree with you, and then that probably goes back to actual findings of fact, right? To me, if 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 what Texas is doing is is placing big visible 
razor wire barriers where someone would say, whoa, there's a lot of razor wire there. I shouldn't try to cross. That's one thing. If it is hidden, a trap, booby trap type thing, well, that's that's something completely different. That might actually be, I, I guess there's a scenario under which that's not illegal, but it sure does seem immoral. Well, to me, to me, it also would seem counterproductive. I mean, the goal of, of Texas, I, I believe, and I think we should proceed with this presumption, right, is that they want to deter border crossings rather than kill immigrants. See, I think you can make the argument that no, it not actually, everyone disagrees. You're like, no, 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 no. no. That's a, they plainly want to kill people. No, I think um, you can make the argument that it actually would be more efficient in some ways to do that. In that, if the thinking is like, we don't know where these barriers are, we don't know what's going to happen. There's a there's a reasonable uh, chance right. that I'm not going to try because there might be a trap there. Exactly, yeah. and that, of course, that is, I think, morally reprehensible. But it might actually be practically more effective. I don't know if that's true, but you see what I'm saying. Right. So in either case, yeah. I think we both agree that if in fact you should, you should look at the, the Trump administration in the next, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's OK. But, say, but listen, I, what we need is is not not a big, beautiful wall. We need booby traps. Yeah. It's, <laughs> but, but I think the one thing <laughs> yeah, we, I like, the, I like the way this guy thinks. <laughs> yeah, I think we both agree that if that, in fact, is going on, that is that is that is no laughing matter. And that's that. Yeah. No, pretty, no, no, no. I, I certainly had Again, my my laughing is sort of because of. My sense is that I don't, and maybe maybe I'm being naive, um, but I don't think a, a government would engage in that sort of thing. And I think they're the the what Texas would want, both from an outcome standpoint, deterring illegal immigration, and just from a political standpoint of being seen as doing stuff uh, to deter immigration, is big, very visible bar uh, uh, barriers. Yeah, I, I certainly hope you're right about that, although I know that there is at least a small contingent of people who believe that if you try to cross the border illegally for whatever, whatever reason, you get what's coming to you and we should be able to take pot shots at people doing that. And, all. and of course, that is that is not representative, I don't think, of the vast majority of people who are very concerned about immigration. But unfortunately, that's an attitude that is out there in some segment of the public. Right, right. All right. Well, with that, we will close this slightly extended episode. And if you're not already supporting the show, we hope you'll consider becoming a supporter. Uh, supporters make the podcast possible. And when you become a supporter, you get a bunch of good things. You get ad-free episodes. You get the full-length version of our midweek show, which Jay and I will be recording in just a minute here. It comes out every Tuesday in full length. You get access to our Politics Guys Discord group where all kinds of interesting stuff happens every day. And if you're interested to get see the seat, I don't know, to hear more about any of that, not to hear, but to learn more about any of that, it's patreon.com slash politics guys. You can also get access to that in the show notes. I always have a link there or at politicsguys.com slash support. And uh, if you want to get in touch with us for whatever reason, you have a thought, a comment, a critique, I don't know, whatever it is, you can always do that through old-fashioned email at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also that Discord channel I mentioned for supporters, and we're also on Facebook and X, and you'll find links to those in the show notes. And finally, as always, a very special thanks to our most excellent executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.